Barev says internet. I am Andy. And I'm Thomas. We are back for episode three. So uh, want to dive right into the topics today? Okay. So I was thinking we start with just kind of a straightforward one. This is news about Barbados. Barbados wants to remove Queen Elizabeth II as its head of state. This is from CBS News. And it says, Barbados has announced a plan to remove Queen Elizabeth II as its head of state and become a republic. The island nation's governor general, Sandra Mason, said Tuesday during a speech that the time has come to fully leave our colonial past behind. Mason, who was speaking on behalf of the country's prime minister, Mia Motley, said Barbados will seek full sovereignty by November 2021 adding it can be in no doubt about its capacity for self-government. Barbadians want a Barbadian head of state, Mason said. This is the ultimate statement of confidence in who we are and what we are capable of achieving. Hence, Barbados will take the next logical step towards full sovereignty and become a republic by the time we celebrate our 55th anniversary of independence. Barbados to become a republic, remove Queen Elizabeth as head of state by November 2021, when the nation marks its 55th anniversary of independence, announces Senator Mason, Governor General, and the Queen's domestic representative in outlining upcoming priorities of Mia Motley. The move would make Barbados the first country to drop the monarch since Mauritius did it nearly three decades ago in 1992. Queen Elizabeth is the head of state of 16 countries that are part of the Commonwealth, which includes the United Kingdom and former British colonies. Barbados gained its independence from British rule in 1966. Buckingham Palace said the issue was a matter for the people of Barbados. Britain's Foreign Office told CBS News in a statement that the move would be a decision for Barbados. Barbados and the UK are united in their shared history, culture, language, and much more. We have an enduring partnership and will continue to work with them along with all our valued Caribbean partners, the statement said. Queen Elizabeth's role is ceremonial and symbolic in Barbados. While her title includes Queen of Barbados, she's not involved in the day-to-day businesses of the country's government. With the advice of Barbadian ministers, Queen Elizabeth appoints a governor general who represents the queen at formal events and she keeps in regular contact with. The title is occupied by Mason. Even though member states in the Commonwealth have no legal obligations to one another, they are connected through the use of English language and historical ties. So what do you think about that, Andy? Barbados to remove Queen Elizabeth? Support? Against? I mean, it's Barbados. I mean, if if they're become more, more of a constitutional and less of a monarchy because of it, I mean, I guess I'm fine with it. Like, I mean, they are a two-party system, I believe. Yeah, I don't know. What about you? I'm fine with it, too. I mean, I understand. I mean, it would be different if Queen Elizabeth was, like, the queen of Barbados and, like, Barbados was her home base and, like, her capital was in Barbados and stuff. But it's not... And uh, she's known as the Queen of England. She's not known as the Queen of Barbados. And I think that Barbados should really have their own leader. And if that's a republic or a a constitutional monarchy, I doubt it would be. I don't know who would be the king or queen of that. They haven't really had a royal family of their own ever. What about uh, uh, Queen Motley? Like, I don't know. 
Oh yeah. Oh, that just looks shady. You're like making your prime minister the new I mean, king who or queen. Did... Didn't the Central African Republic try to do that in the seventies when they tried to their leader tried to make himself an emperor and he tried to proclaim to everyone like, "Hey, I'm the Central African Emperor. Look at me. I'm no so idea. powerful." I have no but, yeah. I I don't follow Central African Republic politics, so uh, I don't know. But uh, I imagine, I can imagine how that went over. I swear uh, he did that in the 70s or the 80s or the 60s or something. I think it was the 70s, though. Or actually, but, President Trump wanted to do that and negotiate a third term. But anyways. Uh, um, yeah. Openly <laughs> break the rules. <laughs> this is way off topic yes. from the main point, which is that I'm very happy for Barbados. I feel kind of bad for Prince Charles. I mean, he lost a tiny island. Like, it's not like he lost Wales or Scotland or somebody. That's a good point. But, you know. But then again. It all, it all adds up at the end. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, if you're the ruler of 103 different realms, which, by the way, that number is just randomly made up. I, I doubt that the queen ever ruled that many realms. But... If you're the ruler of 103 different realms, and 100 of them are tiny islands, and they don't actually have much connection to your main country, then, I mean, it's just not as cool to say, I'm the ruler of three realms, versus I'm the ruler of 103 realms. Yeah. So that's just kind of my point there. Plus, it's not really, like, amazing to say, like, I'm the high prince of Akrotiri and Dekalia. Actually, there's a similar situation that happened, like, in Tonga, where, like, they only have, like, one major party in Tonga, and that was founded by the only person who was able to be prime minister of Tonga, because he was, like, the only prominent figure who could, like, get democracy in Tonga, so therefore, yeah, it's t- Tonga's history of democracy and monarchy is kind of weird, but uh, he recently died, too, so, I mean, I don't know what's, ha- I don't know what's happening with Tonga, but... Uh, I can't imagine we have any listeners here who are from Tonga. Yeah, uh, when Canada and Australia and New Zealand all inevitably drop Queen Elizabeth as head of state, maybe they'll just be like, hey, at least we have the pit currents and not make a big deal about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Yes. okay. Uh, uh, If you're done with that topic, do you want to roll into the next one on your list? Because I have like a very big one to do. I think we should do it at the end. But anyways, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll go with Yoshihide Suga, and yes. if you, dear listener, do name. not know who that is, that is Japan's new prime minister. By the way, I went to Japan in 2017, so I did learn how to pronounce a couple Japanese names. So I know it's not Yoshihide. <laughs> yeah. So Yoshi- yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah, it's I did- Yoshihide. Yeah, I I don't know why I knew how to pronounce Yoshihide Shude either. So like I mean like I just I guess it's I was researching Japanese politics and the history of the LDP being in power and I'm honestly surprised that a right wing populist party like them has been in power for so long. But then again, let's not go down the path of right wing populist parties in power right now. Anyway, go ahead. Well, we're getting to one right now. Uh yes, Japan's are. new prime minister yes. Yoshihide Shugas takes the reins of the world's third largest economy this week. He inherits a domestic agenda swamped by the coronavirus pandemic, the country's biggest economic slump on record, and the postponed Tokyo Olympics. By the way, this is in Time, just if you're curious. Time magazine. 
the leader of one of America's closest allies also steps into a tense geopolitical climate amid rapidly deteriorating U.S.-China relations. Yet experts say that this new premier is largely untested in the foreign policy arena. Shuga is more domestically oriented, and several questions have been raised about his propensity to deal with foreign relations and international issues. This is Donna Weeks, professor of political science at Mushashino University in Tokyo. Shuga takes over from the country's longest-serving prime minister, 65-year-old Shinzo Abe, who resigned due to health reasons. Abe, who became an internationally recognizable statesman during his second tenure as prime minister, made wooing President Donald Trump a top priority. He was the first foreign leader to meet Trump after the 2016 election and invited Trump to be the first foreign leader to meet Japan's new emperor in 2019. By the way, if you don't know, Japan, uh, their previous emperor, Akihito, uh, abdicated in 2019, and he was replaced with a new guy. I believe his name is Naruhito. During Trump's 2019 visit to Japan, Abe's pandering made headlines. They played a round of golf, stopping to take a smiling selfie between holes, ate a hamburger lunch, <laughs> sat at ringside seats in a sumo competition, I mean, and then Trump tucked into a Japanese BBQ dinner. I mean, like, that's, like, honestly epic. Like, I mean, Donald Trump de- devouring a rack of ribs. I mean, that would be an amazing. That's an amazing mental image right there. Anyways, keep going. And then here's a tweet posted from the Prime Minister's Office of Japan. This is from May 25th, 2019. And it's Prime Minister Abe. And he says, playing golf in Chiba with President Trump at real Donald Trump, who is visiting Japan as the first state guest in the era of Reiwa. So if you're confused about what that means, Japanese emperors, they have their, like, their normal names, but then they have kind of their special ceremonial names. So Naruhito's sort of normal name is Naruhito, but his sort of ceremonial name is Reiwa. The Akihito, his was, I believe, Heisei. I see. We hope to further solidify the Japan-U.S. alliance in the new era of Reiwa. When Abe announced in late August that he was stepping down, Trump was quick to comment on Twitter. He called Abe the greatest prime minister in the history of Japan, adding that Japan's relationship with the USA is the best it has ever been. That begs the question... I was listening what? to something. Oh, uh, so, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, that begs the question, what will a new prime minister mean for U.S.-Japan relations? I mean, and, like, I don't, like he's, to be fair, though, Trump says that about literally anything. Like, I heard a clip earlier of him saying, about, saying that about, like, Australia or France or, like, some other mostly white country. Anyways, like, ah, uh, it's okay, like. Uh, yeah, okay. he probably wasn't saying it about France, but I don't I know. know. Like I heard a clip of him saying that earlier, or like Austria. I, I mean, know. anyways. Um, so the yeah. article goes on for a lot longer, but I don't want to just be reading this article the whole time. <laughs> so I'm going to stop it there. I'm going to ask you what you generally think, Andy, about this whole Yoshi well, I mean, I Hide think... Shuga situation. 
I don't know what your opinion of Yoshihide Shuda is, but I mean, the LDP, like, your bigger thing is, like, the LDP's been in power for a while, so, I mean, they've been in power for most of Japanese history, like, let me look at, like, list of Japanese prime ministers. And Abe seemed to be, I don't know, he seemed like, I'm not sure if this is going to be a shift in the LDP's politics from less, like, of a right-wing populist party to, uh, yeah, he's just, he just hasn't been in power long enough. It's like, I mean, I don't really know what to think of him. Uh, what about you? Uh, I kind of agree. I do think... I'm not going to use this term correctly here, unlike everyone online who <laughs> seems to use it incorrectly, but I do think uh, Shuga seems kind of like a neoliberal, so yeah. he's really interested in deregulating the economy, and that's a pretty neoliberal thing to do. I mean... Reagan did that, and he's kind of the neoliberal. And yes. he's big on Abenomics, which was the economic policy of Shinzo Abe. So I don't know. I don't think a lot's going to change. He is also big on tackling COVID-19, which is good. It is also Japan's had kind of an... List. Japan's kind of had a weird situation with COVID-19. And a lot of them wear masks already, so... Yeah, I mean, That's cause, good. I mean, in big cities, you can't have amazing air quality. I mean, you trade air quality or big city. <laughs> like, I think yeah. like Tokyo and stuff. Like, no, like, I was in Tokyo in 2017. There are parts of it where the air quality was kind of eh, but I'd say the majority of it, the air quality is actually quite good. Oh, it's also, oh, okay. maybe that's because it was in summer. The thing that is crazy about Tokyo is the insane amount of humidity. Like, the humidity there is just like, oh, my gosh, it's a mosquito yeah. heaven. Yeah. I love Tokyo. Like, Tokyo, it's a beautiful city, great people. I sound like Trump. The, the greatest people. <laughs> the very great people in Tokyo. Yes. But yes. they have great people. I remember when you went there, and you did go there during the summer. So, I mean, like, it, mm -hmm. of course, it's going to be humid. Like, I went to a I would, I, I mean... Like I've been to Alaska in the summer. Like I mean, it, it was it was a hum it was humid there for Alaska. So I mean, yeah, good lord, I hate to uh, wear a mask there. No, oh, yeah, it'd oh, just geez. be so sweaty. I know, right? So like, I dang for, sweaty. I, I know, right? Like I know for lawn walks, wearing a mask like five to eight miles a day, like does exercise, but like and like <laughs> oh man, okay, yeah, that's it's it's terrible wearing a mask and sweating and, and anyways. We're getting into a really non-political topic now. Um, <laughs> yeah, we are. We're in a non-political topic, but that's yes. okay. That's okay. Yes. But yeah. Okay. Anyway, to finish this up, I don't think Abe is really. I'm sorry. I don't think uh, Shuga is really going to change much. Maybe he'll be a better leader than Abe. I'd say he's probably is going to be a better leader than Abe. I don't know. I feel. I feel like Shu. Shu. If Abe is like Reagan which that's a debatable comparison. Yeah. Shuga's like George H.W. Bush, where it's like, okay, he's, he's George H.W. Bush. Like, what else can I say? Well, I or mean, I guess I, if, I, uh, sorry, I need to, I need to do an yeah. international analogy here because we have some international viewers. If obviously like Thatcher, then Shuga's like John Major, <laughs> where it's like, I don't know. He's just kind of, he's John Major. Like, what else do I say? I don't know. 
also, let's hope he's not George W. Bush is as like. Let's hope he just doesn't have to deal with the largest terror attack in world history. Like, let's let's hope he isn't like George W. Bush in that way. Um, oh no, but, I was talking yeah. about George H. I was talking about George oh, H. W. Bush. That's right. There's two George Bushes. Oh, America. Yeah, because because H. W. Bush was Reagan's VP, and then after Reagan came H. W. Bush, and then H. W. Bush lost to Clinton, and then the rest is history. Yes. But yeah. Then, yeah. Anyway. I don't know. Okay. So. Uh, uh, if you're done with that topic, we can keep rolling. Boy, this episode's going quick. Uh, anyways, keep, let's keep, if, if you're done with that, we can uh, keep rolling. Yeah, let's keep rolling. Do you want to dive into the India thing before, before you go to your next topic? or? Yeah, I've, I've done two topics already. So okay, yeah, I'm down. You should zero. do a topic. I'm down two nil. Um, okay, here we go. Yes, there has been another ripple in the India-Turkey relationship, and there has been a shakeup in the world of Kashmir and Jammu, if I put that in the right order. I think it's the reverse order. Jammu and Kashmir? That doesn't sound right, but okay. Boy, India, you really need to make your... <laughs> India, make your provinces something we can remember. Anyways. So... If I there, I'll just... No, I'll skip the history but of how India and Turkey have been on both multiple different sides of NATO and multiple different sides of World War II. So, and I will skip right to Chase. This is from republicworld.com, which, I mean, are that left or right wing? Should I be balancing this out? Who knows? Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so, India pulls no punches against Turkey. He tells Erdogan to understand democratic practices. India on Tuesday... Tuesday, land-blasted Pakistan, Turkey, and Organization of Islamic Cooperation... OIC on the 46th session of Human Rights Council for their remarks on India's internal affairs responding to reference made by Turkey on Jammu and Kashmir. India, in its right to reply, advised Turkey to refrain from commenting on the internal affairs of India, remember who you have in charge, India, and develop a better understanding of democratic practices. Oof, cold punches there. Um, Democratic practices remark at Turkey appears to be to be well seen as Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, correct me if I'm wrong on pronouncing that, is widely accused of cementing his power. Oh, this is talking about Turkey. It all makes sense now. As a result of fixed elections and a clampdown on opposition, having even faced a failed coup just a few years ago, first Secretary of Permanent Mission of India in Geneva, Pawan Badhi, who delivered India's rights to India's right to reply, said. We reject the reference made by the OIC, a seat to the Union of Territory of Jammu and Kashmir, which is, think of a, for our American listeners, think of a Union territory like the British Virgin Islands or American Samoa, which is an integral part of India. The OIC has no locus standi, don't know what that, don't know what that is, probably a typo, to comment on the internal affairs of India. The OIC has allowed itself to be misused by Pakistan to observe it, its own agenda for its members of the OIC to decide if it's in their interest to allow Pakistan to do so. Slam in Pakistan, the Indian diplomat said, it has become um, habitual for Pakistan to malign the country with false fabricated narratives for its self-preserving malicious purposes. Neither India nor others deserve this unsolicited lecture on human rights from a country that has consistently persecuted its ethnic and religious minorities. In the epicenter of terrorism, it has the distinction of providing pensions to individuals on UN sanctions list and has a prime minister who proudly admits trading tens of thousands of terrorists to fight in Kashmir. Uh, Jammu and Kashmir, he said. 
then India also raised issues of state-supported persecution in Pakistan-occupied Balochistan and Tiber Pakhutwa highlighted the nefarious designs of Pakistan in Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. The India representatives said the mass influx of outsiders whittled down uh, whittled down number of Kashmiris to, due to an insignificant number of Pakistan-occupied parts of Indian Union territories of Jammu and Kashmir and Ladakh. Uh, I could go on. Wait, actually, I'm almost done. Do you want me to finish this article or do you have enough? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, finish it. Uh, so I will be using your whole article today at republicworld.com, and you get full credit for it. In its zeal to reassert its theocratic ideology, it has ensured that ethnic and religious minorities have no future through systematic persecution, blasphemy, laws forced, conversions, targeted killing, sectarian violence, and faith-based discrimination. The diplomat said thousands of Sikhs, Hindus, and Christian minority women and girls have been subjected to abductions, forced marriages, and conversions in Pakistan. On the plight of the peop of pe people in Balochistan, Khyber Patutwa, I still can't pronounce this name, Patutwa, P-A-K-H-U-N-K-H-W-A, and Sindh, the Indian diplomat said, not a single day has gone by when a family in Balochistan doesn't find its members picked up or kidnapped by security forces in Pakistan. So, I mean, like, I'm obviously not a fan of Turkey played backseat driver to Pakistani invasion of India. Like, I mean, I know maps are kind of a wimpy way to prove a point, but, I mean, in literally every map you look at, Kashmir is a part of India. I mean, like... Well, I'd say uh, it's kind of split. Like, I'd say that it should kind of be half and half like it is. Like, there's a part of Kashmir that is definitely India, and in my opinion, there's also a part of Kashmir that's definitely Pakistan. I mean, yeah, people say that a lot, but, like, if you look at, like, Turkey, if you look at, like, what, like what I just read, like, what Pakistan has done to the Kashmiri people, and, like, I mean, yeah, you can definitely, like, to the people of Kashmir, like, they're going to be, like, they are not going to, like, going to Pakistan because... Going to Pakistan because of like all the human rights abuses I just read read about that Pakistan is reforming. I mean, to, in a way, I'm not surprised Turkey has backed Pakistan in this endeavor, this endeavor of trying to take over something that probably should be India's because they probably have a slightly better human rights record than I don't know some like somebody like Turkey who has military coups and like a dictator and stuff. I mean, Tur I mean, I'm sure Turkey will become a democracy soon, but like. I don't think this well, they were a well. They were a democracy. I know then, until AKP everyone came kind of effed that up. Yeah, yeah, silly AKP. Um, I, I I can't remember what the real name is. That bothers me now. Anyways, uh, but like I really like it's it's kind of like the Kosovo situation. Like you don't want Kosovo to go to the Albanians, Indians, because like they do like they've done some really bad stuff to Serbia. I mean, like I know we I know we're supposed to be against Serbia because we're American and we fought against them in the war in the in the Bosnian War. But we are talking about that. So like oh. I mean I'm kind of a fan of Kashmir State in India and Turkey, like Turkey, I don't know why they even care. Like I mean I know people say this about like a lot of things. But Turkey, they're like, what do they have to do with India? Like they don't board so like, they're having a border dispute. India Turkey's like right next to Greece and then there's like Pakistan and India, who are all the way over, like, next to China, so it's weird, and I don't think, I think Turkey should just stay out of it. Yeah, I agree Turkey should stay out of it. I do think, um, there is, though, a lot of Kashmir, or I guess Jammu and Kashmir, that is, that is currently controlled by Pakistan, 
And it is also it is also worth mentioning that most of the Kashmiris are Muslim. In India is of course a Hindu country, so that's another factor. So I don't think it's as black and white as you say. I mean, I, I think India does have a better human rights record than Pakistan, but I don't think we should just give all the disputed areas over to India. And I mean, just, I'm, not uh, saying we, I'm not saying we should give all the disputed over areas over to India. I'm just saying, like... I just finalized like, the... There's a I, whole... Uh, all, well, not, I saw fishes. Like, I mean, I know India may have a leader that's done some terrible things to Muslims, but the BJP will will be out of power, like, soon enough. I mean, it's, not, they? like they've de- it's not like they've declared that they're, like, 100% in charge. I mean, as long as India keeps democratic elections, which it seems to, I mean, I'm not extremely worried about it. I mean, they, like, at least they have an opposition now. Like, before, I don't think, like, they had a party that, by their rules, was considered large enough to be considered an opposition. Oh, by the way, I also want to mention that I don't want to sound like a personal dig or anything, but that source that you used apparently is considered pro BJP. So, oh, well, I mean, just like, keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah, it's like I mean, I was like, if it was like somebody, if it was an American, like honestly, the U.S.'s news is absolute. Like, I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, but um, terrible. So we got some terrible news sources here, but like, I think. Uh, I'm, like, I don't mind if it's, like, I mean, at least it's straight from the horse's mouth if it's coming from India. I mean. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. It's, the globe I'm using has, to look at it, I think has Kashmir and Jimmy, well, it's kind of a weird flow because it's not really meant to be a globe. But, anyways. um, If you're a Pakistani and you go on Google Maps, then it's going to show all of Jammu and Kashmir as part of Pakistan. If you're an Indian and you go on Google Maps, it's going to show it as completely part of India. But if you're an American and you go on there, it shows it as kind of this weird disputed area. Yeah. And it indi- but it does indicate the difference between the Pakistani-controlled areas, which is the area around Gilgit, and the Indian-controlled areas. Yeah, that's all Pakistan. That's all Pakistani-controlled. Yes. And it should stay that way, in my opinion. Yeah, well, like Srinagar... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Because, like, the area around Srinagar, which is in India, which is in India, Jammu and Kashmir proper, it should stay Indian. And then I guess we should also mention that there is Aksai Chin, which is uh, disputed between India and China. Pakistan doesn't really have a dog in that fight. They've kind of made a deal with China. But uh, that should be part of India. I don't think that uh, really... I mean... China disputes a lot of territory. There's a whole province of India that China disputes, Arunachal Pradesh, although that one's not really taken that seriously. And people kind of, they don't really recognize it as like an actual Chinese territory. They just kind of say, yeah, you claim it, but you don't actually control it. So, haha, sucks for you. Actually, I have a little thing on Pakistan here. Let me see if, uh, where's a good map? I can't find a good map. Wait, map Just go it? to Google Maps if you want. I don't know. No, I'm trying to find a map of Pakistani provinces. Honestly, if this if this works out geographically, like I think it does, then we then it'd probably better just for the sake of politics. Like, why don't they just be their own independent state? That'd be I a mean, good idea. Yeah, like no, actually, I was just saying, Gilded Balto State. Actually, I said there's a movement for them to become their own independent country. 
Cash Jabu has a lot of uh, militant problems. Due to, again, this is like so much like the Kosovo situation. It's hilarious. Like, they might be better as their own independent country, but yet these two countries are having this massive war inside of them. It's kind of awkward. And they're like, they're, they'd be like this tiny little state that's like population-wise, like Luxembourg-sized, if that. So uh, uh, they'd be yeah. more. They would be more than Luxembourg-sized. Really? They would be. Population reading on them is. They'd be in the millions, I think. Let me check. What are they? Okay. Oh, 12. It would be around. Million. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. they'd be almost the size of the Netherlands or Belgium. So they're like, yeah, they'd be almost yeah, the Netherlands, Belgium size. And geographic wise, they'd be about the size of uh, Syria. So that's, yeah, that's fairly like, big. Yeah, I mean, Syria is about the size of a, uh, yeah, Romania size. So I mean, yeah, now, now we're just rounding up people size. People think from, yeah. <laughs> now we're just yeah. rounding up size. Like, eventually we're going to be doing, oh yeah, it's about the size of Russia if you round up all these sizes. Anyways, um, okay. Do you want to go further? It's a, it's a Montana sized, roughly. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe not Montana sized, maybe more uh, Colorado sized. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, like, even population wise, India's provinces are unnaturally big. Um, yeah, have you seen that? There's something that was floating around a couple of years ago I saw where it's like a map of the world, but then there's a circle that surrounds India, China, Southeast Asia, Japan, and Korea. And it's like more people live inside the circle than outside. And it's like, whoa, it really makes you yeah, think about like, how crowded India and China and that whole how, area is. Or how weird democracy in China would be like. like oh, man. Anyways. Why don't you, you should just split up China? Like, just have a North China, Central China, and South China. I don't think China. And then give the if emperor and then give the Uyghurs, Tibet, and Hong Kong their independence. Yeah, no, we also need that means we also need to give Macau its independence and Taiwan and yeah, um, Macau. Yeah, Taiwan. Yeah, sure. Well, Taiwan should just control South China. I, I mean, maybe like. Plus, Emperor Xi would have to approve this, and Emperor Xi is not a big fan of Taiwan, because like they call like, like I mean, yes, the one China, for maybe five to the because if you remember, just think about it, it is one China five systems with these special economic regions that are capitalist. So you have the communist China system, the capitalist China system, you have the Macau, Hong Kong, and Taiwan system. Like, so one China five systems is. I mean, I guess it's working for now if Emperor Xi was, or President Xi, or whatever his name is now, wasn't so, uh, I don't know, rude to uh, Macau, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Because remember, he tried to, like, take back Hong Kong long before their lease was up. So, I mean, and then I think, like, who they, like, and then Hong Kong held an election for their general council, I think they call it, shortly afterward. And they ended up with, like, the pro-Beijing alliance absolutely dominating that election. So it's kind of an interesting situation. The government went pro-Beijing and the people obviously didn't. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about China. I mean, they're in a complicated situation. It's just, by the way, I find it funny how we topic hop from India to China. (laughs) But anyway. And Kosovo Uh, (laughs) and all the other stuff. Okay, yeah. But, but uh, anyway, China's just like, I don't know, they're so big, and they're so complicated. Yes. And they're so actually not homogenous. Like, if you look at a census of China, you're going to be like, oh, look, they're 91% Han Chinese. Or it's like, that doesn't really sh- tell the true story. Because, like, 
Han Chinese in in um, Manchuria. Like, I don't know. If you're way far north, like, if you're in Harbin or Beijing. Uh, even uh, even Beijing. Beijing's not even in Manchuria. But uh, if you're in Harbin or Beijing, it's way different than if you're in, like, Chongqing or Chengdu or Guangzhou or any of those. Like, it's just, yeah. it's really crazy. And it's like, I don't know. Should China, should China even really be one country? Or if not, just like do a United States of China. Why not try to pull <laughs> yeah. America? Yeah, I don't know. It's like, I like there's another country I think that uses United States in its name as well. But I don't, I can't think of who it is. Um, Mexico, Mexico. Oh yeah, it's the United. It's Mexico, uh, Andy. Unidos Estados Mexicanos. That's right. United States of, or de Mexicanos. I think. I uh, oh, what Spanish class? I do remember something from Spanish class. Anyways, uh, let's move on. If you're done with China. Yeah, I'm done with China. That wasn't even on our radar, by the way. Just yeah, so that know. was like, oh yeah, that was a that was a uh, totally off. Uh, well, we don't really have a script, but that was totally that was definitely unscripted. Um, okay, uh, did you want to do a topic now? Because I'm pretty sure that's our longest one yet. Sure, I'll do one. So this is gonna be the first of three topics surrounding Jews, uh, which is a weird. I don't know why it just turned out this way, but it did. Wait, you have that this week I would have three topics that surrounded Jews. Three totally unrelated topics, by the yes. way. Yes. But three topics I think are worth talking about. You sent me your agenda, and I only so have two, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I added another one. Okay. Um, okay, so this first topic is from The Independent, and it says, Shocking and saddening, nearly two-thirds of millennial and Gen Z Americans, unaware six million Jewish people murdered in the Holocaust. So let's talk about this. This article says, Nearly two-thirds of young American adults are not aware that six million Jewish people were killed in the Holocaust, according to a new survey. The survey carried out on adults between the ages of 18 and 39 across all 50 states in the U.S. show a worrying lack of basic Holocaust knowledge in its respondents. The Conference of Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, who commissioned the survey, revealed that 11% of U.S. millennial and Gen Z respondents believed that Jewish people did the Holocaust. Examining Holocaust denial results showed that 10% of people said that the tragedy did not happen or they were not sure. In total, 23% of people either said the Holocaust was a myth, was greatly exaggerated, or was not sure. Almost half of the national survey respondents could not name one of the more than 40,000 camps and ghettos that were established in Europe during the Holocaust, with 56 percent unable to identify Auschwitz-Birkenau. Oh boy. The results are both shocking and saddening as they underscore why we must act now while Holocaust survivors are still with us to voice their stories, said Gideon Taylor, president of the Claims Conference. We need to understand why we aren't doing better in educating a younger generation about the Holocaust and the lessons of the past this lesson needs to serve as a wake-up call to us all and as a roadmap of where government officials need to act. 
The survey showed that 63% of respondents did not know that 6 million Jewish people were murdered, and 36% thought that, quote, 2 million or fewer Jewish people were killed. The Claims Conference, who seeks to provide measure of justice for Jewish Holocaust victims, expressed fear over the results as fewer and fewer Holocaust survivors, eyewitnesses to a state-sponsored genocide, are alive to share the stories of the Holocaust. And I don't want to go through this whole article. I highly suggest you read it. I'm just going to paraphrase the rest of it. It talks about how 49% of respondents say they'd seen Holocaust denial or distortion posts on social media or elsewhere online. 30% said they'd seen Nazi symbols on their social media platforms or in their communities. 59% say the Holocaust or something like it could happen again. And the survey calculated the Holocaust knowledge score by using the percentage of millennials and Zoomers who had definitely heard of the Holocaust and they could, and who can name one concentration camp, death camp, or ghetto, and know that 6 million people, 6 million Jewish people were killed in the Holocaust. And Arkansas has the lowest score with 17% of its respondents, followed by Mississippi at 18%, Florida at 20%, and then Wisconsin at 42%, Minnesota at 37%, and Massachusetts at 35% are the three highest scoring states. A task force comprised of Holocaust survivors, as well as historians and subject matter experts from museums, educational institutions, and leading nonprofits in the field of Holocaust education, was set up by the Claims Conference to oversee the survey. And the Claims Conference basically urged that increased education on the Holocaust is needed to combat these findings, and the survey noted that 80% of all respondents believe that it is important to continue teaching about the Holocaust in part so that it does not happen again. Interviews were carried out with a thousand respondents nationwide, 200 interviews in each state with adults aged 18 to 39 via landline, cell phone, and online interviews. Greg Schneider, executive vice president of the claims conference told NBC news that The most important lesson is that we can't lose any more time. If we let these trends continue for another generation, the crucial lessons from this terrible part of history could be lost. So, Andy, what do you think about all that? I partially blame schools for this. I mean, I'm not saying, like, schools are teaching Holocaust denial. I'm not a weirdo. School is boring. Like, I mean, I've known people who have gone through it, tried to learn foreign languages, and, like, Oh, yes, I did four years of Spanish in school. I remember none of it because school's just boring. And they teach about the Holocaust in schools. And I think people are just like, yeah, cool, whatever. It's school. It's boring. It's tedious. I think it's partially school's fault for this. I mean, because, like, I studied it last year, and, like, I don't remember a lot of it because, like, it's school. Plus, we also did a bunch of other units, and the teacher moved really fast. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's I agree. partially school's fault. Like, because I took four years of Spanish. How much Spanish can I speak? Not enough to hold a conversation. I used to be good at it, but not anymore. Um, so, by the uh, way, yeah. By the way, if you're one of those 11% of people in the millennial or Zoomer generation that think that Jewish people cause the Holocaust, I'm sorry, you're a terrible person. I just have to say that. Like, yeah, I don't know. You're either mentally dumb, you're either a 
idiot with a lowish IQ or you're a terrible person. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you can say that seriously. Like how, how, how the heck do you believe that? Like Jews caused the Holocaust? Like what world are you living in from some yeah. sort of weird alternate universe? Like what the heck? Oh my gosh. But anyway, yeah, I do think that schools need to teach this more. Teach it the way that we teach about, I don't know. We love to talk about a 9-11. And I mean, I definitely think we should talk about 9-11. Yeah. Every, watch- every year we talk about 9-11. We spend the whole day on it. Um, we should dedicate a day. I don't know which day it would be. Yeah. But like, we need to dedicate school- a day. It's like Holocaust Day. Where we, in your classes, heck, in your science class, you learn about the Holocaust. It's like something that you always need to be learning about. And basically... Don't, you shouldn't graduate high school without learning about it. I would put it in the curriculum mandated by law that you have to learn about it. Here's the thing, so, though. Going back to the be bored in school thing, won't that just, won't that just like, increase like, the ignorance of it based off of what I just said? Like, I mean, schools, like, yeah. I think, it, I think that may actually increase ignorance. Like, but I don't know. That's just me. Well, I mean, I disagree. I do think that, I mean, come on. If you're talking about something like, I don't know, memorizing uh, the four states of matter, like I'm a science guy, I find that stuff interesting, but I do understand that a lot of people don't find that stuff interesting. But it's like the Holocaust, there's a lot more morality involved there. And it's like, there is an evil involved in the four states of matter, but like really sort of pulls on your emotions when you learn about the Holocaust. So yeah. I think a lot of people will be able to remember it in a way. But I don't see people getting bored of with 9-11 stuff, like when people talk about 9-11 well, here. No, it's okay. kind of like, I mean, we watched a very vivid movie about 9-11 and about one of the flights that nobody survived. Yeah. The one to D.C.? Or that was supposed to go to D.C.? The one that crashed in Pennsylvania. We watched a movie about that and, like, how the passengers tried to, like, overthrow the hijackers and stuff like Our that. A beamer. Todd Beamer, right? He was one of the guys on the flight. Oh, yeah, that guy. He was like, he was the devout Christian who played like nine sports or something. That guy, yeah, he was in there. They just didn't name any names. Um, yeah, so, but we, like, to be honest, we only talked about 9 11 in two of our classes that, on like the memorial. Well, then I know school, I know that was only two days into school, but like, we didn't, we didn't talk about 9 11 heart. Like, we talked about it in like my two morning classes. I have seven total, by the way, in case you're wondering, and I have five a day. Um, does mornings rotate? Anyways, it's weird. I'm not trying to sound like or anything, but like avoiding because, I mean, is just common. Avoiding yeah. stuff like that is just common. Yeah, I mean, it also shows how evil humans can be. Like, there are a lot of people who say humans are good people, like sometimes, but yeah, most of the time they are mixed at best, and in this case, they're terrible people. Like, there are millions of people on this planet who are just terrible people. And yeah. they are—they have no morals, and they will do cruel and evil acts like this. And yeah. we need to educate people about what this looks like, how this started. I mean, we have—we all have to know about why Holocaust happened. It didn't just happen because Hitler's like, "I want to kill some Jews for fun." Like, no, he didn't. Didn't start like that. It started with all the conspiracy theories about the Jews and the banks and the them profiting off of the depression and them controlling the big corporations and stuff. And it's like, I don't know. Sometimes I see this stuff today, and it, you know, it makes me a little 
worried. And by the way, that doesn't mean that you can't like criticize Israel. We're going to get to an Israel story. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But we're going to get, anyway, yeah, we're going to get to an Israel story in a bit. And it's fine if you criticize Israel, but you have to do it fairly and you can't yeah. do it in a way where it's like, I mean, like seriously, though, holding like, Israel to an unfair standard. Yeah. And if, and by the way, if you're a listener, and when we're talking about Israel, if you if you think that we're holding Israel to an unfair standard, feel free to DM us at our Instagram at uh, TWI one two four. This week international, yeah, TWI one two four zero four. If you feel that way, but we'll get into that in a bit. So anyway, do you want to talk about your next topic, or do we want to I get have, into I have some other topic? I have a big one, and if you like, if you want to do your two more topics, like right now, because I have kind of a big one. I mean, I know we've been recording for a while, but I have I have kind of a big one that kind of leads down multiple paths. So I think we should save save it for last. Okay, so I'm I have two more topics. I have this next topic about Hasidic Jews, believe it or not. Okay. And then I have the you the deal. another one about the whole. Yeah. So should I do Jews deal and then? Yeah, because I have I have a whole topic. I have a long I have a long thing about Italy that I want to talk about. So like I mean like this has multiple. Okay. Like, you you do we'll have uh um the this week international uh Jewish corner and then we'll have my Italy thing. Okay, this is about uh this is from the Associated Press. Jewish pilgrims retreat from the Ukrainian border, uh, Kiev, Ukraine. Thousands of Hasidic Jews are stuck at the Ukrainian border for days due to coronavirus restrictions and have turned back without reaching their destination, the grave of a revered rabbi, officials said Friday. About 2,000 ultra-Orthodox Jewish pilgrims had traveled through Belarus in hope of reaching the Ukrainian city of Uman, not to be confused with Oman, to visit the grave of Nachman of Breslov, an important Hasidic rabbi who died in 1810. Brooks, I wonder if that's connected to Brooks Love. Probably not, but I'll look at that. Thousands of Hasidic pilgrims visit the city each September for Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which, by the way, is uh, right now, although it might not be when we upload this. We'll see. It's celebrated September 18th to 20th this year, as some pilgrims had managed to get to Uman before Ukraine closed its borders in late August amid a surge of COVID-19 infections. Thousands of others traveled via Belarus, which hasn't barred foreign visitors from entering. Authorities in Ukraine and Belarus said Friday that Hasidic pilgrims cleared the no-man's land between the two countries, where they camped for several days, some sleeping in makeshift tents, and others on the ground. Belarusian border guards said that less than a dozen of them remained in the area. At the same time, Ukraine border guards agency said Friday that it turned back several Hasidic pilgrims who tried to enter the country from Poland, Hungary, and Romania. As the pilgrims spent days stuck on the Ukrainian border, Ukraine and Belarus engaged in angry bickering over the standoff. On Wednesday, Ukraine's presidential office accused the Belarusian authorities of issuing misleading signals to the pilgrims that they would eventually be allowed to cross the border. Belarusian officials shot back, accusing Ukraine of inhumane treatment of the pilgrims and offered to provide buses to drive the pilgrims to Uman and back to Belarus. So I think that's an interesting story. It's hard. I mean, closing your borders, 
I hate this term for any other context. Like it's usually meant as like a kind of a warmongery context, but I am a hawk on COVID. So I'm very hardcore with like coronavirus restrictions and stuff. But I do think they should make an exception here because it is a religious event. And as long as, as long as they're trying to wear masks and keep uh, protections and precautions, then I think they should be able to do this. And I mean, Rosh Hashanah is once a year. I mean, I understand they won't get it next year, but this is a big deal for them. And I think that they should be able to do this safely. I mean, if they're not wearing masks, then sure, send them back. If they don't want to try to keep some social distancing, then sure, send them back. But if they can do this safely and do it in a way that does not increase the COVID-19 spreading, then I think they should definitely be able to do it. Your thoughts, Andy? I mean, I'm okay with the Ukraine either way here. Like, I've had some church stuff that's been canceled, so it's kind of a coin toss. I feel like it's Plus different here, though. Wait, why? Because they're Jews? No, it's because this is, like, the main holiday. Like, I mean, like, if, if we had church once a year, and it was, like, involved a pilgrim to somewhere, then it's like, that might, I might be open to it a bit differently. And also, they can't just virtually pilgrim to this guy's grave. Like, we can do virtual church. And Jews, Jewish uh, synagogues, I bet they can do a lot of their stuff virtually too, but this is different. It's like pilgrimage. Like if, if Christians had a tradition of doing a pilgrimage to wherever, some saint, then I'd support that too. I'd say, hey, it's, it's a special thing to them. I mean, it's great. I think that they should be able to do what they want. And I mean, I am a Christian, but I do try to be pretty non-biased when it comes to this stuff but yeah i just think that it is a bit different than just like hey my youth group was canceled mine wasn't during covid oddly oh, enough it wasn't oh <laughs> they did it online for a little while but for the majority of it they're actually meeting in session tomorrow night so uh yeah but yeah i don't think there's much else to say here i don't know but yeah i just think that they should be able to do this by the way, I think the COVID situation will be better next year during September. So I don't think this will really happen again. And at least if we get a vaccine distributed by September, which I'm thinking we will. But hey, uh, if we don't get one and they uh, and they aren't allowed to, and they uh, their pilgrimage ends up causing an increase in cases, then hey, maybe uh, we shouldn't let them do the pilgrimage. But for now, I think... Just let them do it and don't make a big deal about it, Ukrainian government. Anyway, to do you want to get to the the rain Israel UAE story or do you want I to mean, get to your story about Italy? No, go ahead with the Israel Bahrain UAE thing. Okay, so another story about Israel. I swear that I have not uh, chosen. We're just gonna have. Sw- to- or we'd have to call this the all about Israel and a couple other things special or something. I don't know. Well, it's all about <laughs> Jewish people, yeah. which is, a, again, a strange coincidence. But yeah. Israel, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates will today sign peace agreements in Washington, heralding a new era of friendship between the wealthy Gulf nations 
and the Jewish state. And this is from the Telegraph, and it's from September 15th, so it's a couple days old. And this event already happened. Donald Trump, the U.S. president who oversaw the negotiations, has hailed a historic breakthrough for his great friends in the region, which hopes he will enhance his foreign policy credentials ahead of elections in November. By the way, I have to say this before we continue on with this article. This will not matter to anyone in the U.S., even if you're a Jew. If you're a Jew in America, you are already decided between Trump and Biden. I mean, it's probably not every Jew, but most Jews are already decided between Trump and Biden. Trump uh, Trump has been doing a lot of this uh, Israel stuff. I mean, we've kind of found out that a lot of it's because he has a lot of sort of Christian conservative friends, and they have what I what would rightly be called ulterior motives for supporting Israel. Not really because they're like big into helping Jews. They're more into revelation and the end times, which I don't think should be making policy decisions, but that's just me. But anyway, uh, I'm going to keep going. But other Middle Eastern countries, notably Iran and Turkey, have strongly condemned the agreement, which they believe spells disaster for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and could harm their own regional ambitions. Here we look at how the so-called Abraham Accord will change the Middle East and who will emerge from the historic deal as the key winners and losers. I do have to give Trump credit, though. Abraham Accord is actually a pretty good name because Abraham is big in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And I'm not going to read this whole article. Again, I'm going to try to paraphrase it. Israel is probably going to be the biggest winner of this deal, and it's going to help uh, to create a anti-Iran alliance. I think we've kind of known this for a long time. Well, but, yeah, we almost went to nuclear war with Iran, remember, January? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and it's, uh, and I mean, being in, be having good relations with Abu Dhabi, or just the UAE in general, is always a good thing. I mean, the UAE, again, I said this on uh, last week's show, it's not the most powerful country, but it's definitely an emerging power. And it will just keep getting more powerful as time comes on. It's going to be I a mean, big tech capital, like I bet. Be I bet. Big, it's, it'll be, it'd be big if they became a democracy. Like, that would be huge. They oh, probably they're... won't become a democracy, but that doesn't really matter. I mean, China's not a democracy. And they're yeah, a, true. Yeah, true. They're an ec- they're an e- economic powerhouse, so I don't think actually that really matters much. But it also helps Israel because they're starting to warm up with some of their neighbors who I guess will soon be their allies. And uh, the UAE and Bahrain do have benefits from this. The UAE, this will help them. I mean, it's good for the UAE to be with Israel. They kind of share common enemy. Originally, they've kind of been working together for a while, but originally it was more in a kind of a, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That shared enemy, of course, being Iran. But now it looks like maybe they're going to start actually considering themselves friends with each other. And they were able to convince Israel to not annex 30% of the West Bank, so that's good. Um, And then as far as Bahrain goes, uh, Bahrain is also, I guess, an emerging power, maybe not as much as UAE. It's pretty small, so... They don't really have as much stuff. I mean, I think they have some oil, but it's not nearly as big as 
the UAEs, but I do think that it will benefit both of them. And Bahrain, Bahrain's kind of complicated because Bahrain's ruled by a pretty weird dictator and just kind of how their country is, but I maybe they could uh, sort of democratize a little bit. Although, again, that doesn't really impact their economy as much as a lot of people might think. And then I'm going to talk about the losers, and there are really three, the first of them being the Palestinians, or at least the Palestinian Authority. And Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, is pretty angry at this, and... They feel betrayed because, I mean, the UAE and Bahrain are both Arab countries, and of course the Palestinians are a subsection of the Arabs. Although that's a bit of a different topic, and we can get into that in a future episode if you want. But the Palestinians basically think that Trump has undermined their negotiating position in the Arab world with the UAE and Bahrain now signaling they want to take a completely different path to securing peace. Which, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a grain of truth in that, that, I mean, there, there wasn't a big deal about, like, the settlers or something, which, again, I do think is key in an Israel deal. You have to talk about what you, gotta, what you do about the settlers, because, sure, if you're not annexing the West Bank, that's good. But, again, I don't, I don't think there's any big policy change when it comes to the settlers. So that's something. And Iran is also pretty angry about that. I really have a lot less sympathy for Iran just because, I mean, they're trying Iran's... to kill us all, or not, or uh, they tried to kill us. So I mean, yeah. Well, the Iranian government. I mean, not the yeah. Iranian people. The Iranian people yeah. are great people. The greatest. Yeah. They're the they're great people, but they're great people. But uh, the Iranian government really doesn't like us, and they really don't like Israel. And they their reasons for not liking Israel are kind of anti-Semitic. Didn't they do like a Holocaust drawing competition? Maybe I'm making that up, but um, I believe that they did. But And there are a lot of Holocaust deniers there. So that's different, and that's kind of strange. And Iranians' leadership have always favored peace and not tension, particularly with its neighbors, a senior Iranian official told Reuters news agency in last August. And they also say, we have always acted based on Iran's national interest. Tehran will not take any aggressive measure as long as its interests are not endangered. So I don't think this will really put anyone at risk, uh, this deal, when it comes to Iran. They're not going to drone bomb us or anything. They're not going to drone bomb Israel. There could be maybe something going on with Hamas or Hezbollah, but probably not. I mean... They're, we're in a pandemic, and do they really? Is this really their top priority right now? I don't think so. And then the other loser, I guess, here is uh, Turkey. Who, interestingly, Turkey was one of the first countries to recognize I mean, is, Israel, first Muslim country to recognize Israel. I mean, but, this, to be fair, this has also been kind of attacked the Turkey episode, too, with the whole India thing. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and again, I like the Turkish people. They're great people. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, the Turkish government, Erdogan, he's a bit of a dictator. And a bit. he is quite the dictator. Yeah. Which is sad because, I mean, Turkey was a pretty democratic country. Until um, AKP comes along. Well, until the AKP, yeah. 
I mean, they've always had their struggles with democracy, but they've, in a region of conflict, they were pretty stable in like yeah, the yeah. 1950s and 60s. Yeah. But anyway, Iran, sorry, not Iran, Turkey is really into Palestine and supporting the Palestinians right now. And he has a, uh, Erdogan has a pretty good relationship with uh, Ismail Haniyeh, the leader of Hamas. And he denounced the whole deal and he said it was a stab in the back for the Palestinians. And it's, uh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I mean, Turkey also decided to buy Russian uh, S-400 fighter jets. And Turkey's in NATO, but I don't know. Are they going to be in NATO for much longer? I, did, I mean, they also... They, wasn't there a war when they fought against NATO? Like, I mean, or, or am I thinking of, like, some other... Well, they fought the Kurds in Syria, and we were helping them. So, that is also a big issue. I mean, the Kurds are... We should do an episode on the Kurds. We haven't gotten in... We haven't had okay. a story that has been a big Kurd story, but I want to talk, do at least a 20-minute discussion about the Kurds because it's okay. a very interesting topic and should we, they uh, definitely uh, deserve, deserve a long-term episode. But anyway, should we like I think a, I'm done with this. Should we do that after we do our other special we have planned? Just do like a series of specials? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, we like, should. We'll do, the, we'll do the Canada special. I just gave that away. I'm sorry. But yeah, we'll do the Canada special. We'll do the Kurdish special. We'll just, we'll just be keeping a list. And then, eventually, when we're, then eventually, by the time when our planned... Canada special comes around. We'll have a whole. Anyways, yeah, Turkey. I mean, what's going on, Turkey? Anyways, big, uh, yeah, big dictator. Yeah, yeah, er, yeah. I mean, but then I don't see Erdogan leaving anytime soon. Like, I know they've chosen somebody new for their next quote election to replace Erdogan for the AKP, but like for a party that's added Erdoganism into their ideology on Wikipedia, I don't think they're going away anytime soon. I mean, plus, who do yeah. you have lined up after that? Like, you have the, well, I mean, the Republican People's Party, they are bad. They're social Democrats. They're not, like, really extreme or anything. The uh, uh, party that does well in the Kurdish areas, there's one I mean, party oh, that the, does work. Oh, uh, uh, HDP, pro-Kurdish, People's Democratic Party of Turkey. Yeah, huh. the HDP. Or, but, like, you also have people who would be, like, really, like, worse than Erdogan, like you have the Nationalist Movement Party and then you have... You, you have those grey wolves, I don't know if they're organized into a political party, but they're they're yeah, freaky, that, they have that weird hand symbol where it's like the it's like the rock and roll, like the, the <laughs> devil horns, but then they you also like, it's like a mouth so it's like kind of a wolf, it's really weird, you can look it up, but yeah I mean, I, I, it's like a big I, symbol there, it's basically a Turkish oh. uh, nationalist symbol Oh, I mean, oh, there's a picture of Erdogan doing it. Like, I just found a picture of Erdogan yeah. doing it. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, Turkey. Definitely going to have to do an episode based on Turkey, along with the... Yeah, and we Canada. can add... Yeah, we'll add that to our list, special well, list of specials. <laughs> we can mix Turkey in with the Kurds, because okay. their histories are pretty intertwined. And uh, the Kurds are all over in the Middle East, but Turkey is definitely where there is the highest concentration. And when you think of the Kurds, you probably either think of Syria or Turkey. And it's because Turkey 
has so many cards. Yeah. But or a rack, I guess. Or a rant. So maybe that's yeah, a maybe that's a are, new point. They're really like in Roma's, those four countries. Like the Kurds are like the Romanis. They're just like everywhere. Well, I mean I yeah. Uh, the one difference though is that Kurds are heavily concentrated in a couple areas. Like there really yeah. aren't any areas where it's ninety percent yeah. Romani. Uh, the Kurds, there are many areas where it's like 90, 95, 98% Kurdish. Yeah. It's like, it's a, it's a monolith. And it's like, yeah, you don't yeah. have Arabs there, you don't have Turks there, you don't have uh, Iranians yeah. there. It's like, it's all Kurd. Yeah, it's like the Albanians. They're just like super concentrated in certain areas. Yeah. Are there any other groups who are kind of like that? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess the Ojibwe, yeah. but I don't know too much about the Ojibwe. So, I mean, like, they seem like only Midwestern U.S. and Canada, but I don't know. If we're done with this topic, did you want to move on to – wait, you yes. had – what was your last – No, I'm oh, – no, no you're, I you're, finished all my topics. Your, uh, your tank is empty? Okay. So it's time for my really long Italian story. Um, so Italy actually has – they say local elections. They're regional elections. They're like, part, they're like provincial. I'm not sure like if they call that in provinces. Provinces in Italy, but I'm going to roll with it awkwardly. Um, they have regional elections coming up, and part of it is a constitutional referendum that, like, why, Italy, why? So, the basically, the whole thing is here that they're going to cut the Chamber of Deputies in the Senate, which is their national parliament. They're going to cut that by, like, two-thirds, so the Chamber of Deputies is 630 MPs, or whatever Italy calls them, and it's going to be cut down to 400, and the Senate, Italy Senate, is 315 MPs, and it's going to be cut down to... 200. Here's the reason this is going to be such a big defeat. It's a yes-no referendum. And the reason it's like a 40% blowout is because all the big parties, like the people who blatantly support it, like uh, Matteo Salvini and Lida, and, uh, Lida Nord, uh, Five Star Movement has supports it. Uh, the Democratic Party has supports it. Like, Well, the only two parties who are uncertain are Italia Viva, a liberal party who's relatively relevant, led by ex-Prime Minister Matteo Renzi, who abruptly resigned, and Forza Italia, led by six or seven-time Prime Minister of Italy, Silvio Berlusconi. Those are the only two who are undecided. But, like, this is, I think this is just a super anti-democratic move for Italy, because the only people who are going to support this, the yes voters, are the supporters of the big parties who make up who apparently are polling at 70%, and the no voters are the people who are, who are like, all the parties that are going to lose their seats, I guess. Like, here we go. I'm, listing, I'm just listing a name of part, listing parties, like Italia Left, More Europe, Federation of the Greens, Italy and Common, Power to the People, Italian Socialist, Energies for Italy. That's not even, like, a fourth of the list, but, yeah. I support having uh, multiple parties, like... And this leads into it. I kind of want to talk about like what's a two-party system, like what countries are like two-party systems and not two-party systems and stuff like that. But like Italy is also having local elections coming up, and if you look through their local elections, it's all the big parties. Like this is going to be a disaster for smaller parties who like who are like trying to like get power and like I don't know, maybe like a disaster for democ for their democracy because like. I get it. You can easily call Italy a four-party system. I mean, the uh, like with uh, Liga Nord, you have, oh man, there's so many. You have Liga Nord, you have Five Star Movement, you have the two left-wing parties, the Democratic Party and Forza Italia. I mean, you could probably go on, like, plus you also, I mean, I just tend to, I kind of like the idea of getting rid of the Senators for Life. That seems kind of unfair, but... Um, I agree. Yeah, it seems, but like, you have so many major parties in, like, Italy, you're like the last like true multi-party system because 
like I mean I've heard Thomas I've heard you call Austria a three-party system kind of I kind of disagree with that yeah Germany is also a Kind of a multi-party system. It's <laughs> yeah, a bit complicated. No. Most most countries in Europe are two and a half party systems, where it's like you have two big parties, you have uh, well, like you have like one or two smaller parties that are important but will never be in charge, like the Liberal Democrats. Like the Liberal Democrats in England. historically in England were very important. I mean, now they're kind of in the slums due I mean, to their blowout to... performance in 2015. Due yeah. To them. Plus, they got. Uh, they... They got kind of, they got kind of, they got some of their fire stolen by the SNP as well. So I mean, yeah, and they broke their they broke their promises with uh, yeah. a lot of the austerity stuff and uh, yeah, I mean, teaming up with the conservative party. Plus, but like, that's history, so yeah. we won't get into that right now. Yeah. Plus, like, I mean, the only reason the SNP is probably never had a prime, produced a prime minister is because Scotland's population just yet like. They they vote like eighty percent or something SNP, but like the only like the only prob- reason why we've never had an SNP prime minister is because is because Scotland's population is just way too small. Um, Wait, do they vote eighty percent? I thought they had more voted like fifty percent because I, I heard mean, somewhere I heard somewhere like I heard like a I'm not sure if the, this is a lie, but I was watching some Brexit footage, like some Brexit debate footage, and I heard eighty somewhere. But like I don't know, I could be wrong. I just know they have like they vote SNP a lot. Um, so like, yeah, but like this is what's your take on this whole reducing seats thing? Um, I don't like it. I think that the more seats, the better. I mean, I don't want in a thousand seat parliament. But yeah, no, that'd be a pain. Um, I don't think that they should reduce seats, and I don't really see why. Like, what would, what good would come out of it? Let's be honest. People die in their seat, and I mean. We're having this happen in the U.S. with uh, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just passed away while serving on the Supreme Court. But people die in their seats, and that's always a big deal about, like, how do you replace them? Do you hold a special election? Do you just let the uh, the ruling party promote someone to the seat or appoint some, some buddy of theirs? Like, what the heck happens? And it's like, in a like a 50 seat or a 100 seat or a 150 seat parliament that's a lot bigger of a deal than say a 500 or 600 seat where yeah. it's like okay like we have multiple vacancies in the house of oh, representatives yeah. here in the US and I it's mean, like well, then, uh, the average that's not as point. much of, that's that's not that big of a deal well it's like if we had like five vacancies in the senate like Oh, oh that would be insane. Like, you'd never, like, you could theoretically never get a majority on any bill, say the parties were close enough. Yeah. Like, it seems like, or you could have, like, they, I think Canada once had this happen where, like, somebody, like, I don't know, like, they either lost seats in their parliament or, like, somebody died or something, and they ended up with, like, a new prime minister, I think, who's from a different party. I'm not sure, I could be wrong about that, but I think that may have happened in Canada once. But, like, I mean, I, I'd argue that most countries are, like, a four-party system. Like, in most countries in Europe are a four-party system. This is one of the things I wanted to touch on with this, but... Yeah, I wouldn't... That... Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Because, like, I mean, I'd argue that Italy, like, if you look at a chart of their parliament, they're definitely, like, a four- or five-party system to me. And, like, if you look at France, I mean, in their last elections, you had... Like you had the common folk, uh, the Republicans and 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 uh, the Socialist Party, but then you also add added in this like 
National Front, this, this extremely right-wing party, and you added By the way, Mache, but uh, so like you added those two in, and you ended up with you end up with a four-party system, and I don't know why I just never followed Spanish Spain's politics before, but in in Belgium actually right now you actually have a split, you have like no government. Yeah, I don't know the big situation in Belgium. I don't really follow Belgian politics, but yeah, yeah, the, you have a the front, supply. the Front National, or I guess now they're called the National Rally, or in yeah. French. Gosh, I really hope first year French helps me with this. Rassemblement National, uh, the National Rally. I mean, they're definitely kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, they've been around since the seventies. Oh uh, yeah, October fifth, nineteen seventy-two, to be exact. I pulled that date up on the internet. And they were founded by noted uh, racist Jean-Marie yes. Le Pen. Yes, and he's Holocaust denier, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic. Yes, and so bad that even his own daughter, Marine Le Pen, basically had to say, "Dude, shut up." <laughs> <laughs> she kicked him out of the party. I think is what happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I thought she. Yeah, like, yeah, and then, and then like, and then. Honestly, though, like nobody, no, like not many people like Marine these days either. So, like, yeah. Which, although I have seen that, uh, for a while actually, if there was gonna be a rematch between um, Macron and Le Pen, apparently she would actually do better than she did in 2018. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, Macron is pretty unpopular during the 2019, the 20, early 2020, the yellow vest protests. Yeah. Due to his raising, uh, due to the gas tax situation, which I mean, that kind of pissed a lot of different people off, pissed some right wingers, but pissed a lot of left wingers off because they didn't really want their taxes raised. It looks actually like Marine Le Pen is already uh, grooming a successor. Uh, she's a niece named uh, Marie, Marion Marachal. I don't know how to pronounce that. Marachal. Um, <laughs> I'm going to call Marion Le Pen. That's her middle name. And that's her niece. And she's 30. And she's, she's in the National Front. So it looks like uh, maybe she'll uh, succeed Marine Le Pen way down the line. Um, I don't know. Maybe they're going to be like a weird family. Uh, maybe they're going to be a weird far-right political family. Who knows? We'll see. I don't know. But I don't think Marine Le Pen's going to go anywhere. Um, sadly, I think she's going to stick around for a while and, uh, with her ideas and I don't know, lose elections. She's never going to win. Like in the end, as, as much as people are going to say, I hate Macron, like Le Pen is just so far out there that there's no way, there's no way that she'll be able to overcome Macron or anyone really, uh, Fillon or Hamon. Or, I don't know, maybe Melanchon. Or, uh, heck, if Francois Hollande came back, he'd probably win. Yeah, maybe. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's all. For, uh, yeah. That, so, um, you want to wrap things up? Yeah, let's wrap things up. Okay, so, uh, Thank you all for uh, listening. You can find us on Votable, uh, which we don't use that much. Reddit, which we don't use that much. And Instagram, Instagram. Which, we, which we talked about a ton, with, but it's kind of anti-user. But anyway, oh well. Um, uh, and you can also find us on, I was looking for it, 
Spotify, Pocket Casts, Breaker, Podcast, Beaker. Yes, thank you. Apparently, we have an RSS feed, and uh, I don't know how to say goodbye in Armenian, but uh, bye in Armenian, internet. <laughs>